Coming up, we talk to historian David Fields about the history of U.S.-Korea relations, the division of Korea, and the role that religion has played in the way Americans have understood the Korean Peninsula. All that right after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Dan, your host. We're transitioning slowly but surely into our fall schedule here at Upper House, and we're excited for the new semester. We're a couple weeks away from classes, but we can already feel the buzz of a semester that, while certainly it isn't entirely a return to normal, it's optimistically looking like we'll be in person and we'll have some normality to it. So today's episode, it's a personal delight that I get to bring you this episode. It's me interviewing one of my good friends and a fellow historian, David Fields. A little about David. He is currently the Associate Director for the Center for East Asian Studies at UW-Madison, and we'll talk about that a bit in the interview. And David and I went through the PhD program together here at UW in the History Department, where David specialized in U.S.-Korea relations. David has published widely in his field, including his book, which we talk about a good deal in the interview, Foreign Friends, Syngman Rhee, American Exceptionalism and the Division of Korea by University Press of Kentucky. He's also the editor of The Diary of Syngman Rhee and the book review editor of the Journal of American East Asia Relations. And really, there's a lot more that David has done that we'll just leave unsaid. So this conversation was a delight not only because I know David, but because I've talked to David pretty regularly about the things we talk about in this episode. It's a pleasure to bring some of those insights in a more public yet still conversational forum like a podcast. The issue of U.S.-Korea relations is, of course, one of constant headlines and concern. And David is one of the foremost experts on the history of the division of Korea into North and South that we just take for granted today. But he also pays close attention to the role of religion in U.S.-Korea relations. And that attention extends from the influence of missionaries in the late 19th, early 20th century and on the founding father figure of the Republic of Korea, Syngman Rhee, who was a Christian, to the way that Rhee was able to tap into American exceptionalist assumptions about the role Americans believed God had given the U.S. to spread Christianity and democracy around the world. And that really plays into U.S. involvement in the Korean Peninsula in the 20th century. So we get into these topics and many others, and we also hear about David's education and trajectory into the study of history. Really want to just head into the interview now. So here's an upwards conversation with David Fields. Glad to be with you, David. Welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. So let's begin with just uh, getting a sense of who you are and basically asking what's your history with the study of history? It goes back quite a ways, actually. I I was interested in history before I even knew what history was. Um, And this came about by the fact that my parents would often take me and uh, drop me off at the Sparta Public Library when I was fairly young, probably, you know, around 10 or 12. Um, And often after church, we would stop by the library, too, and I would just start perusing the stacks and, 
you know, looking at the kind of things that little boys would be interested in, you know, a lot of books about uh, probably airplanes and tanks and that sort of thing. <laughs> but then I remember picking up one book. Um, it was about a 700-page book called The History of Monroe County, Wisconsin, written by the Honorable, I believe his name was Edward uh, Morrow. And I picked up this book, and it was it was a tome, and it was organized by townships. Um, and so I had all the townships in our county and a sketch of their history. And one of the things that it covered was how they got their names. And this was absolutely fascinating to me that I could read and I could know how this place got its name and that place got its name. And it was so interesting because as far as I could tell, this was information that no one else had. And there, there was no adults in my life who could tell me this. So I think it was something that I felt like I can get this on my own. And I remember explaining, I think it was to my parents, but it might have been someone else, how these different places got their names. And them telling me, um, wow, you're really interested in history. And I remember a light going on and saying, oh, so that's what you call this. You know, this this mm. information about the past is called history. And from that point on, um, I, I've always been deeply interested in history and I think really wanted to do history as a profession, be a professional historian. Um, I did toy with um, some other things for a little while, uh, related disciplines, archaeology, thought about law for a little while, um, really tried to enter government service for a little while. But history was always there. And it's it's always something that's that's really fascinated me, understanding, you know, how situations in the present came to be the way they are. Mm -hmm. Did you um, always sort of plan to major in history and then go on the PhD work or did that sort of develop over time? Oh, uh, I did. I, I knew immediately um, when I thought about college, I wanted to major in history. However, it was my first week of college um, when I got there that it was explained to me that um, a four-year degree in history does not prepare you to be a historian. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. So I had really, I, I knew I wanted to be a historian. I had no idea what that entailed. So I remember it was my first year as a freshman that I heard the term graduate school for the first time. And I was kind of dismayed by that and thinking, well, I'm going to study history for four years and then I have to go study for, for you know, longer. It's a good thing no one at that time told me how long graduate school was, how long it took to, to get a Ph.D. Um, but I think by the time I was a junior or senior, I was pretty much committed to do that, even though I had uh, many good advisors who, quite frankly, tried to talk me into doing something else and, you know, told me. You know, the the prospects for being a professional historian are very poor. Graduate school is a very long process. And they uh, they really tried to point me in other directions. And and I didn't listen. And, and I guess it's worked out. But there was there was a lot of water under the bridge in the meantime, a lot of worrying whether whether I would ever be able to make a living um, working in history and being an academic. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And I think that that just idea of not knowing what you're getting into. I, I went into grad school basically because the. Um, the economy tanked in 2007, 2008. So had I known, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what the, the alternate uh, <laughs> history would have been, but um, it worked out in the end, I guess. Okay, so you've been uh, interested in history for, for much of your life. Uh, other side of that that we tend to ask uh, our guests, did you have a religious or spiritual dimension to your childhood and, and what did that uh, look like? I did. Um, so I was raised in uh, independent fundamentalist Baptist church um, in, in a small town in Wisconsin. Um, besides my father, I come from at least two, maybe three generations of Baptist ministers. Um, my father was not uh, a Baptist minister. So I very much grew up in a religious environment. It was very central in my home and, and in my family. Um, and my parents also felt very strongly about religious education. 
Um, the issue was where we lived, there was no Christian school for independent fundamental Baptists. So um, I went to a series of uh, ecumenical uh, private religious schools, uh, which um, by the by the time I was in high school, that particular school I went to tended to be dominated by um, charismatic Christians, um, either in the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostal movement or in denominations that, frankly, I've never heard of before <laughs> or since. Um, and as a result, throughout my religious upbringing, I really got a broad sense of uh, Protestant Christianity, all the way from maybe the most conservative fundamentalists um, to the, the charismatic, to the real spirit-filled kind. Interestingly enough, the one kind of Protestant Christianity I had no interaction with was mainline um, there, were, there were no mainline Protestants in the school that I went to. Um, and I say that's kind of ironic because I'm an elder in a Presbyterian church in Madison right now. So I, I've, I've kind of run the gamut of what Protestant Christianity has to offer and have, um, have found a happy home in, in mainline Christianity and in uh, the Presbyterian Church of the United States. And I want to give a shout out to uh, Mark Elston, who was a previous guest on this podcast, who is the, the director of the the press house, the Presbyterian student ministry on campus. And, and it was really, um, it was really his ministry and that of uh, Reverend Erica Liu um, that really brought me in to mainline Protestant um, Christianity into the Presbyterian church as a graduate student. And that's where I've, I've landed. And uh, yeah, that's where I feel very comfortable. Um, I feel like I've, I've kind of seen the extremes and there's, you know, there's a lot to be critical of in mainline Christianity, um, just as with any particular sector denomination. But I feel quite at home there. Great. Well, thank you. And we'll see the uh, all that interest in um, Protestantism in particular as we talk about Syngman Rhee and uh, U.S.-Korea relations as well. Uh-huh. So um, getting back to your uh, professional life as a historian, how would you, if someone just came up and asked you, how would you define yourself as a historian or, or even as a, an educator or a teacher? I define myself as an American diplomatic historian who specializes in uh, the U.S. relationship with the Korean Peninsula and East Asia more broadly. Um, I am somewhat uh, old-fashioned as a historian, I think. Um, That's why we like hanging out there. Yes, as, as you <laughs> as you know, no doubt know, Dan, and, and maybe some of your listeners do, um, probably in the last 20, 30, 40 years, there's been a real shift in the study of history away from prominent personalities and and famous people, political leaders, towards um, people who have been more marginalized, towards social movements, towards uh, groups who uh, their stories have really not traditionally been a part of history. And this has been incredibly valuable to the field. Um, there, There are certain things that you learn from studying these kinds of groups, these kinds of overlooked people, that you would never learn, you know, from from studying high level politics and political leaders. And and so I think the field has just benefited tremendously from that. However, that has never been what my interests were. And I think maybe I grew up in such an absolutely ordinary environment filled with such absolutely ordinary people that I always found those people really, really dull. And I wanted to study, I wanted to study prominent people. I wanted to study people who are on the front pages of the times that they lived. Which is what I've done, which is which is somewhat ironic, considering that most of the people I study are hardly household names today. Um, many of them have largely been forgotten, such as uh, Sigmund Rhee or uh, Yi Man. Um, but but so that's always wh- where my interest has been, and that's not to denigrate any other type of history. 
Um, but, but that's, that's what I find captivates me. Um, and I, I think that there's a, there's a similar tendency in my teaching. Um, I am very much a, a traditional kind of, of history teacher uh, with a, with a lecture. Um, I assign an absolute massive amount of reading, generally about 2000 pages per course. And I, I really try to give students who take my courses, try to get them through a lot of material and come out of the course with a really broad knowledge of the topic and having read a lot of, on the topic and prepared to really educate themselves further in the future. So I don't do a lot of what would be considered um, cutting edge things in terms of pedagogy, in, in terms of approaches to the material. But I, I think I more stick with the, the tried and true approach. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to be at such a large university. Mm. I think at a large university, there's space for people who do all kinds of research. There's space for people who do all kinds of teaching. And, um, you know, we have an undergraduate population of about 40,000. So out of those 40,000 students, there tends to be about, you know, 30 to 40 every semester who are willing to go through <laughs> what I put them through and to find that interesting. And it's something that I would probably have a lot of difficulty doing at a smaller university. I'm not sure that anyone would want to take a class. I could find enough people to take a class that assigned uh, 2,000 pages of reading. Um, I, I will say another thing that I, I try to do in my teaching especially is I, I try to connect students. I try to get them inside the minds of policymakers mm. and inside the minds of history makers. So um, this past year we piloted a program where I had uh, six fellows join my course and interact with the students, people who are former ambassadors, people who are former intelligence officers, people who have lived through um, some of the history that, we're, that we were studying, and to give the students a chance to ask them questions and to ask them what they were thinking. Um, and, and then as a perk, it was actually these fellows who gave feedback on the students' final exams. Mm. And that was a way that I could say, you're not just writing for me. This is not just an academic exercise. I wanted to try to simulate as much as possible what it would be like to be a decision maker themselves and to have their decisions scrutinized by others. So, yeah, I, I, I think I think that's what I do as a historian and, and what I do as an educator. And you mentioned uh, your your specialization in U.S. Korea relations. Tell us a bit about um, your experience actually in the Korean Peninsula. I know you've you've been there a number of times and you obviously uh, know a good amount of the language as well. Yeah, so I first moved to Korea in 2005 um, to, to work as an English teacher. Um, I had zero interest in Korea at the time. What I had was a large amount of student debt, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to. Um, and so when I graduated from undergrad, I knew I wanted to, to be a historian. I knew I needed to go to graduate school, but I had absolutely no money to do that. I was in debt, and I couldn't get into any graduate school that offered me funding. So I needed a job and I needed one badly and I needed a job where I could save money. Um, and, and my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, said, um, you know, I'm going to go to Korea and teach English and it, it pays pretty well and you can save money. And I looked at it and I said, well, that that seems to be what I need to do. So I went to Korea with the idea that I would stay there two years. I did not anticipate developing any interest there. In fact, all of my historical interests were moving in, in what I thought was a different direction at that point. So I'll just go there, earn some money. Um, come back and try again to get into graduate school. And, you know, as often happens, you live somewhere for an extended period of time. Um, you start learning the language, which I did, and I became very interested um, in Korea and ended up 
studying something totally different uh, than I thought I would. Um, and I've been back several times. I was most recently there from 2016 to 2017 as a Fulbright scholar. I think all totaled, I've spent just under four years um, in Korea. And I, I hope that I'll continue to get the opportunity to, to do that. It's a absolutely wonderful and, and fascinating place to live. Yeah. And you're one of the, you're certainly, the, I think the only person I know, but one of the few Americans who've actually been to North Korea um, on, a, on a sort of official tour of the country. Uh, I have been um, back in 2010. I was supposed to return back in 2011 to actually do something much more interesting, which was to be part of the first class of foreign language students to study at Kim Il-sung University. Um, unfortunately, as things often happen in North Korea, that program was canceled at the very last minute, and I was unable to go. Um, but yeah, it, it was really, uh, uh, that was really the genesis of uh, another part of work I do, and, and that is, you know, writing and thinking about North Korea, um, not, as a, not as a really analyst, um, but really more thinking about U.S. North Korean U.S. North Korean relations in a historical context, and and that trip was um, was really fundamental in the way I understand North Korea and and the way I write and think about it. Sure, yeah. Well, your your day job is uh, directing UW's Center for East Asian Studies, which obviously Korea is part of that, but it's it's much bigger than that as well. So, tell us a bit about the center and and what its purpose is on campus. Sure, uh, I should I should clarify and say that I am the associate director. Um, there is a faculty director who who is the director of the center who rotates usually every three or four years, um, and then I am there permanently. That's that's my permanent position. So, um, the faculty director and I you know, work very close together on uh, making decisions about the day-to-day running of the center. Um, but I, I like to think of the UW Center for East Asian Studies as really having two different missions. And one is a mission to the university. Um, the other is really a mission to the broader public. Um, in regards to the mission to the university, uh, what we are is we are a national resource center for the study of East Asia at UW, meaning that we are a conduit for federal funding to come into the UW to um, allow investments in faculty so we can teach things like Chinese language, Japanese, Korean, Uyghur, so we can have um, historians of this relationship. And the idea of this kind of funding, which we often refer to as Title VI funding or as uh, NRC funding, it, it really goes back to the, um, to the Vietnam era where uh, American policymakers realized if the United States is going to be involved in places like Vietnam or even thinking back involved in places like Korea, it's important that we have people who know something about those places, who speak those languages, who have been there before, that we have this body of expertise, um, which the, the, the truth is the United States has always been able to find that expertise, often in, in the terms of, of return missionaries. But the great idea behind NRC funding was we need this expertise and all this expertise shouldn't come from Harvard and it shouldn't come from Yale. Um, students in rural Wisconsin who get interested in, in China and want to major in Chinese should be able to go to a state university and do that. They should be able to go you know, to their local university and do that. So the idea behind the NRC funding was to make sure that universities across the United States had this sort of expertise to give options to students and to really create um, a diverse body of people, whether they worked in government or not, who had this sort of expertise, who could, you know, who who the public can draw on when these issues sort of come up. So a big part of what we do is is support the teaching and research and learning about East Asia across the university. As far as our public mission, um, we, we like to joke in our center that our mission is to 
make Wisconsinites the best educated people about East Asia anywhere in the United States. And we do that by offering programming to schools, to public libraries, really to any sort of, of institution that wants to work with us to, to conduct programming that draws connections between Wisconsin and East Asia. And uh, a few examples of what we do is about 99% of the ginseng grown in the United States is grown in Wisconsin, and 95% of that ginseng is grown in one place, and that's Marathon County. Wisconsin, uh, uh, where around the Wausau area. Um, so an example of what we do is um, once a trade war with Donald uh, that Donald Trump orchestrated against China really started ramping up. One of the things that the Chinese, you know, really placed tariffs on was ginseng, mm-hmm. you know, trying to really hurt this community. And, and so we worked with um, business owners. We worked with uh, public policy um, organizations in Wausau to do events on this trade war where we brought in community members, where we brought in uh, experts on economics and East Asia to hold public forums where where people in that community who are being affected by this trade war could hear from experts, could have their questions answered. Um, Just recently, I fielded an inquiry from a group of Wisconsin teachers who are very interested in cranes, and they've learned that uh, the Wisconsin experience of creating habitat for cranes has a counterpart in Korea, that actually Korea is doing some path-breaking work right now in trying to maintain a crane habitat. And they wondered if our center could work with them to create some curriculum for teachers that they could bring to their classrooms to not only treat, teach them about environmental issues, teach them about cranes, but also to draw connections between uh, crane conservation in East Asia and in the United States. And, you know, the first thing I had to do was actually learn something about this but of course, I said, yes, I'm, I'm happy to try to connect you with these experts. And so this is the kind of, of thing we do when when people want to understand East Asia better. We try to partner with them to create programs that will um, that will fulfill this mission. If I can just say one more thing that we do, which I which which I'm very excited about is last year we started a grant program for public libraries in Wisconsin called the East Asia and Wisconsin Library Programs which offers uh, small grants to any library in the state who wants to update or enhance its East Asian-related holdings or who wants to hold East Asia-related programs in their community. And our hope is that any Wisconsinite, you know, whether whether you live in, you know, Waukesha or whether you live in Merrill, will be able to go into a public library and be able to find information there, good, high-quality information about East Asia, and, and hopefully be able to educate themselves. That's great. And obviously, East Asia in the news all the time. So yes. uh, always relevant things to talk about. Um, very good. Well, thanks, David. Uh, we're going to dive in now to your book uh, called Foreign Friends, Syngman Rhee, American Exceptionalism and the Division of Korea uh, with the University Press of Kentucky. Um, very distinctive cover of Syngman <laughs> Rhee's left side of his face. Yes. But if you open up and open and look at the back cover, then you can get his full face. That's which, very true. Oh, it, yes. It, it, One it, eye on each side. It of the wraps cover. around. Yes. There's a lot of face in that cover. And uh, I mean, that the, the cover does uh, reveal a lot of what's in the book, which is it's a lot about um, this very fascinating figure, Sigmund Rhee, who um, was sort of a founding father of modern uh, Republic of Korea. But uh, just backing up to um, the beginning of your project, what was the genesis of the project? Why did you come to this topic and um, sort of conceive of wanting to write a history of uh, Sigmund Rhee and his relationship with America? It, it, it's a mixture of longstanding interests and then kind of contingencies that you can't plan for. Um, so I, I've been interested in American exceptionalism since I was an undergrad. Um, I grew up in a community where I don't think 
American exceptionalism was ever seriously questioned. Um, but it was also never seriously explored either. Um, so, so I'm not sure that it was much beyond a vague notion that there was something special about the United States, something unique about it. I mean, what happened when I went to university, even though I went to a fairly conservative Christian university, is, is I met a lot of people and a lot of professors who, who really didn't believe in it. And this was quite interesting to me, and I began to explore it. And, uh, and, and what I found was um, there are people who believe in American exceptionalism, and then there are people who really want to challenge this notion of American exceptionalism. But there wasn't a lot of people who, uh, who I felt really studied it and asked the question, well, why does this exist? You know, if the United States is, in fact, not exceptional in so many ways, why do so many Americans believe that it is? And so I, I became interested in this question. Um, yeah, I mean, we have all sorts of indicators that the United States is not exceptional in so many regards and, in fact, is maybe very average in, in some regards, you know, when it comes to health outcomes, when it comes to violent crimes. I mean, there's actually many areas in which we are exceptional for the wrong reasons, you know, where we are exceptionally bad at different things. But I, I wasn't interested in the debate about, on the one hand, where everybody believes in it, and on the other hand, people tell them that they shouldn't. What I wanted to know is, why does this belief persist? So that was one of the streams. Um, as an undergraduate, I also spent significant time in Latin America and became very interested in U.S. foreign policy. So I was interested in exceptionalism and U.S. foreign policy when I graduated um, from undergrad. Um, but uh, as I mentioned before, I couldn't get into graduate school and I was heavily in debt. And so that's when I moved to Korea. Um, and the thought was, I'll spend two years working in Korea. I'll save money. I'll come back to graduate school. And um, I'll study something at the nexus of American exceptionalism and U.S. foreign policy, probably related to Latin America. Um, well, I did study in Korea for, for two years, um, got in a financial place where I felt like I could go back to graduate school. The only problem was I couldn't get into any graduate schools. Um, there was no place that would accept me. Um, and the only place that I could get in here was um, to an M.A. program in Latin American studies at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, so that is what I did. I took advantage of in-state tuition here, all the while hoping that I would find the back door into a PhD program. And if anyone has found the back door to an academic career, it is me. <laughs> um, it was it was years of unsuccessful applications. Um, so I was doing my MA in Latin American Studies. I actually wrote an MA on um, uh, a Nicaraguan president by the name of Jose Maria Moncada who used American exceptionalism to lobby in the United States. I felt like it was a really fascinating story. But at the same time, I was always, I was still very interested in Korea from the two years I spent there. And I had started, continued actually studying Korean at the University of Wisconsin with the idea that if I got into a PhD program, I would write a comparative study of a Korean and Nicaraguan attempts to lobby in the United States using American exceptionalism. I had I had this inkling that Sigmund Rhee, that there was this man named Sigmund Rhee who also had a long lobbying career. And it was it was while I was in my MA that I read uh, Robert T. Oliver's biography of Rhee and, and was quite taken by his uses of American exceptionalism. So I thought, okay, I have a PhD topic now. This is what it will be. I ended up finding the back door into a PhD program here at the University of Wisconsin. And I proposed to write my PhD doing a comparative study of these two people, only to be talked out of it by very, by many very wise people who told me that, that no book can be a case study if there's only two case studies. You have to have three. So either you add a third one or you, you drop one. Um, and I was not interested in learning a third language at that point. I actually really felt, um, really my trajectory bending towards Korea. And so at that point, I saw I, I decided, OK, what, what I will focus on is um, Korean invocations of American exceptionalism 
And by doing this research, I didn't actually set out to tell the story of the division of Korea, but that's where the research took me. And I realized that this was a really important component of the division of Korea that had been overlooked. So it started with an interest in American exceptionalism and foreign policy. The detour to Korea is really what got me onto the Korean topic. Yeah, that, and that sounds like a lot of uh, the way book topics uh, develop, particularly uh, sort of uh, ones that are rooted in a dissertation and, yes. and all that primary You, you wander research. around. <laughs> That's right. You wander in the wilderness and you eventually find your way, hopefully. That's right. That's right. Well, two terms that uh, are really key, I mean, they're in the title, the subtitle, are Korea and American exceptionalism. We'll get to American exceptionalism uh, in a second. But... Uh, for those, uh, there might be many listeners, uh, me included, honestly. I mean, I know you. I've read most of what I know about Korea through you. Um, but I don't have sort of innate knowledge of the Korean Peninsula or the history there. What, what's the primer we need on Korea uh, to understand this story? You know, it, it's a really good question, Dan, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Because as I thought about this, there's almost no Americans today who probably have any memory of a unified Korea. And there's certainly almost none who would have a memory of a unified Korea that was not a Japanese colony. Um, so, so what this book is, is, is this book is really the backstory of the division of Korea. I, I think probably most Americans would know today that there is a North and a South Korea. <laughs> this is a fairly recent development. Um, you know, this comes into, this comes out of the joint U.S.-Soviet occupation in 1945. It essentially becomes codified in two different states in 1948. But what I'm focusing on here is how that came to be. So in for my book, there, there's only one Korea. There's a unified Korea. Korea has a unified history uh, as a, the kingdom, the kingdom of Chosun, for uh, over a thousand years in, in Northeast Asia before it was divided in 1945. Um, it's colonized by Japan in 1904. So from 1905 to 1945, it was a Japanese colony. But previous to that, it had a long existence as a, a unified kingdom in Northeast Asia. And so I'm trying to explain how this political entity that had been unified for so long um, it, it is divided and the role that um, American exceptionalism and Korean lobbyists uh, played in that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we'll get to it more, but uh, Syngman Rhee, sort of the central figure, he he's, he's Korean by birth, and he's always thinking about this unified Korea. He never saw himself as the what he would become the president of South Korea, um, which is uh, how he's remembered by most people now. Um, but for most of his life, uh, certainly for the first half of his life, um, Korea was, th- th- it would make no sense to call, to talk about North and South Korea as separate uh, political entities. Exactly. No, yeah. that that is something that that no one even would have believed possible until 1945. Um, and, and that, was very, very controversial. And it, it remains controversial to this day that, um, that some Koreans accepted the creation of a separate state in, in, in the South, an independent state, instead of fighting, stalling, digging their heels and doing whatever they could, um, to prevent the division of their, of, of their country. It, it's really a, a tragic tale. And it's, it's still an emotion, an emotive issue in Korea today, um, yeah. that, that Koreans, at, at least in theory, long for the reunification of their country. This this division was a national tragedy that they wish never would have happened. Yeah, and I think you, um, I mean, you're, you're really good at, at highlighting that theme. I think you can read some of that in some of the coverage of um, the big summits and other mm. things that have happened. But um, but it's important to remember that that is a very recent development. The North very South. recent, yeah. yeah. Okay, the other big term, uh, it, it's in your title too, is American exceptionalism. You talked a little about that already. 
and, and I think a lot of uh, people sort of know this when they see it, uh, the sense that the U.S. has a particular special role to play in the world or uh, a particular destiny that is different from all the other countries uh, on the planet. What else would you say about American exceptionalism? Sort of what are the claims um, being made? And maybe rooting it in, in this story, what are the claims that Rhee is making about American exceptionalism? Yeah, I, I should I should be clear that what I try to do in the introduction of this book is actually define what I mean by American exceptionalism. And and actually the term American exceptional, exceptionalism appears on the cover because the term American mission needed defining. Mm-hmm. So this book is actually about a specific type of American exceptionalism, which I call the American mission. And and one of the things that, that I feel like I learned through this study and, and one of the areas where I feel like I can contribute to our understanding of American exceptionalism is by realizing and by trying to describe that American exceptionalism is a whole genus of intellectual ideas. It's not a distinct species. So there are many, there are various types of American exceptionalism, everything from the chest-thumping nationalism of the United States as the greatest country on earth, even if we don't know exactly why, to a kind of negative exceptionalism where the United States is the most evil country on earth and, and everything we do in the world is is um is is driven by ill motives and generally results in in bad outcomes um so uh, eventually what i what i did is i tried to create a taxonomy of american exceptionalism where i i refer to american exceptionalism as an identity and then american exceptionalism as an opportunity so american exceptionalism as an identity means that the united states is an exceptional place there is something unique and special about the united states even if we can't define it we will always be exceptional that, in my view, is actually not the oldest version of American exceptionalism. The oldest ver- version of American exceptionalism is an exceptionalism of opportunity, which I call the American mission. And that is the idea that the history and the resources of the United States has given the United States um, the ability to affect change in the world in a positive way. And therefore, Americans have a responsibility to do this. And I think this goes all the way back to John Winthrop and the, the city on a hill, where he's telling you know, them, even before they get off the boat, we have a chance to do something really special here. But also in that message was a warning that we also have a chance to really screw this up. And if we don't do it right, we will have wasted this opportunity. So it wasn't the idea that you are a chosen people. It was the idea that you have a special opportunity do not screw it up. And so I trace that idea in the introduction. Um, really, uh, it, it's, it's a very breezy overview going all the way back from the 17th century, but up to the 20th century of this belief that the United States has a mission to accomplish X, to accomplish something. And just what that something is changes constantly. It, it's always up for grabs. It's whatever a mass of American people can convince themselves it is at that particular time. And I think figures like Sigmund Rhee understood how useful this could be. And so his lobbying activity in the United States over 40 years from 1905 to 1945 was to convince Americans that they had an opportunity and a responsibility to do something for Korea, both because he felt that the United States had responsibilities to Korea because of an obscure 19th century treaty that he 
convinced Americans the U.S. government had violated, and also because Korea had the opportunity to become the first Christian nation in Asia. So based on these two pillars, he was making an appeal to American exceptionalism to define their mission in the world in terms of support for Korea, both to spread Christianity and to enable Korea to regain its independence from uh, Japanese colonization. Great. Thank you for that. And and this will transition us into talking about Syngman Rhee, but my sense is when when American exceptionalism is studied by historians, it's often looking at what Americans are claiming about the the exceptional nature of the country or people like John Winthrop, who are seen as sort of the predecessors to um, the American nation or the American people or, or some unit like that. Simon Rhee is is not an American. No. And he never wanted to be, as no. far as I understand. Never became an American citizen either, which is is a myth I often have to dispel. Yeah, Sure. Well, he spent so much time here, yeah. uh, for one thing. Yeah. So he's 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 an outsider to yeah. this conversation in a way, and yet he becomes an insider. And as as you trace, he actually really uh, learns how to talk about the American mission or American identity or the calling America has in the world um, as good as and probably better than most Americans um, for his particular needs. So a uh, really fascinating take on American exceptionalism there. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what do we need to know about Syngman Rhee as a person to sort of get a sense of um, uh, his role in, in this story. We'll talk about sort of his political life and, and uh, the activism he does, but who, who was he and sort of what made him tick? Yeah, I, I think Sigmund Rhee is an incredibly tragic figure. He, he is a figure who his timing is just always a little bit off. He, he's always being frustrated. So he's born in, 1875 in Korea, he spends his childhood preparing to be uh, a bureaucrat in the traditional uh, Chosun state. Chosun is the the name of the last kingdom of Korea. Um, And and the exams he needs to take to enter that bureaucracy are abolished just before he can take them. So he spent his entire life preparing for that up to that point, first 20 years. Then they're abolished. Then he becomes a Korean independence activist just in time for Korea to lose its independence to Japan. In fact, he's in prison for his activism when Korea actually loses its independence. He goes into exile in the United States to continue to fight for Korean independence in the process. He, he ruins his first marriage. His son is sent to live with him, who dies um, less than two years after coming to the United States from diphtheria. He spends 35 years in the United States struggling for Korean independence when everybody thinks that it's hopeless. Finally, with World War II, there's a glimmer of hope. He begins to gain some traction. And then World War II ends with not an independent Korea, but a divided Korea, um, the very almost the opposite of what he is expecting. He goes back to Korea. He becomes president of Korea in 1948 at 73 years old. By that time, his mental and his physical strength is is frankly not up to what it needs to be. Um, as a younger man, he might have been much more effective than he was. And, and it's not that he's ineffective as a as a leader necessarily, but he's, he's just so old by that point And he's so tired. Um, despite being labeled as a pro-American for his whole life, he can't he can't convince the Americans that they need to stay in Korea. In 1945, they withdraw. Korea is invaded. The Korean War goes on. Um, and he really ends his life believing that he is a failure. Mm-hmm. believing that everything he has attempted in life has failed and says that he's openly considered committing suicide just because he can't deal with the despair anymore. And um, however, before he can do that, he ends up, you know, contracting a cognitive disease, probably dementia. 
and really lives out the rest of his days in oblivion. I mean, it, I, I feel like in some ways he is one of the most tragic figures of the 20th century who always seems like um, he is he is predestined to do something. And I think he believed this himself. He is predestined to be the deliverer of Korea in some way and always ends up just coming up short. And I think it's important to understand some of his actions in life. I, I think late in life he is he is a fairly bitter and depressed person just because everything he's gone through, everything that he's sacrificed, and it seems that it's all come to nothing for him. So I, I like to think of him, I, I think a good introduction to him is he's a tragic figure. He's a very tragic figure. The other thing I like to tell people is, He's a radical and he's a revolutionary, which is not the way anyone has thought about Sigmund Rhee before. He will become, after 1945, identified as maybe one of the most anti-communist leaders in the world. And too many people equate anti-communism with conservatism. He is not a conservative figure at all. His goal from probably the late 1890s onward is to fundamentally remake Korean society both religiously, culturally, and socially. And he does that um, as a president. He attempts to do that as an activist. Um, but because he was anti-communist, he often gets confused for someone who is a conservative. And he was he was not that. Um, and one of the ways I like to explain this to people is in, in, the, in the 1890s in Korea, there's a traditional dynasty that is on the decline. There are young Western-educated people like Sigmund Rhee who are pressing for change and they come into conflict, and the conflict actually gets violent, and it scares most of the westernized people away. A lot of them try to get to the United States. They try to go into exile. Sigmund Rhee instead goes into battle, <laughs> and several times he is beaten in the streets. Several times the only thing that saves his life is he manages to get to the American embassy in time and be protected by American extraterritoriality agreements. Um, he, he doesn't do what most people would do under those circumstances. Um, in those circumstances, uh, sane people run for cover. Um, Sigmund Rhee ran towards the source of the fighting and tried to mix it up. And that's why I say that that he is a radical. So he's a tragic figure. He's also a radical figure. And uh, he, he's a figure of, of almost endless fascination for me. Yeah, and, and he's also a Christian, which sort of connects him to the first part of your book where you talk a lot about the role of American missionaries in Korea in the early 20th century. What was the nature of his... Christian uh, identity, or, or I don't know if you want to call it faith, but how did he understand this uh, part of his, claiming to be a Christian? Yeah, uh, so Sigmund Rhee's Christianity is is interesting, and it, it's somewhat controversial. And there are people who really wonder how genuine his Christianity was. I um, it's not a question that I really engage in. I, as far as I can tell, uh, he identified as a Christian and quite devout Christian uh, his entire life, but he wasn't overly interested in theological questions. Um, and, and for Sigmund Rhee, I think Christianity was both a means of personal salvation and a means of national salvation. I think he believed in Christianity as a force that could remake him as a person and that could also remake his, his nation. Um, and in 1904, well, 1903 to 1904, he writes a remarkable book while he's in prison. It's not published for a couple of years, but it's called a Dongnip Chungshin, or The Spirit of Independence. And in this book, he, he tells some very hard truths to Koreans. Um, in, the late, in, in the late 19th century, the, the last kingdom of Korea, Chosun, they tended to think of themselves as the most civilized country in East Asia, as the most Confucian and in many ways, the most virtuous society. 
And uh, it, so, it, so it's a real shock to them when first the, the Qing um, in China are humbled by the Japanese or, and then when Korea is being colonized by Japan. And, and what, what Sigmund Rhee tells them is we, our civilization is failing us. The Japanese have actually advanced to the point where they're about to swallow us. We're about to lose our independence. The time to remake our civilization is now, and we need to remake it not based on Confucianism, but we need to remake it on Western learning. And at the end of that book, he actually calls for a mass conversion to Christianity in Korea, which was an absolutely remarkable and radical thing to do at that time. And his thinking is that Christianity is the only force that can remake Korean society, that can refire the spirit of independence, allow them either to maintain their independence from Japan or eventually get it back. And and what's remarkable about that is Korea will actually experience a remarkable Christian revival about three years later. And I don't think that Rhee is responsible for that. I, I don't think that that was necessarily his idea. I think he was just espousing what many Koreans at that time were feeling and that is that our society is failing us. It's time for radical change. What? Where do we go to get that change? And um, re-settled on Christianity, and many other Koreans did at the time. So there is always a political and nationalistic element to his Christianity, which you, you make some Christians, I think, uncomfortable. Uh, I, I think, you know, for many Christians, there, there, there should be a division between the two using Christianity for nationalistic purposes, even though we probably do it subconsciously is something that we're uncomfortable with. Um, Reed was never uncomfortable with that. So, so there was a, there was a joining of the two in his mind. Yeah. Well, it strikes me too. This might be one of the secrets to his, or his continuing influence in the U S is actually a lot of, uh, certainly, um, people like Woodrow Wilson would have actually seen, uh, if if they were to describe the sort of American exceptionalism story, Christianity would be part of that story as well, right? It, that that idea of a special mission that's given by God, or there's some covenantal relationship to God, um, is a core part of a lot of uh, sort of American Christian nationalism as well. So it seems like um, what, one of the things that we had in common with um, uh, his American interlocutors was that they both agreed sort of that Christianity was a key part of a good society of, of remaking a society of keeping a society um, on, on the right path as they understood it. Uh, I think, I think that's correct. I think that's absolutely correct. It, it's also interesting in that re has a very long association with American missionaries before he becomes a Christian hmm. um, and American missionaries. One of the reasons that they're um, quite successful, I won't say extremely successful, but quite successful in Korea is because they understand how strange Christian theology is to 19th century Koreans. Um, and so rather than really pushing for converts, they found schools and they found hospitals. And that's how Sigmund Rhee ends up in their orbit. He wants to get a more practical education after his path to taking the Confucian examinations, the bureaucratic examinations has gone away. And initially, when he's in these missionary schools, the, the one thing he can't stand is the religious training. And he thinks it's some of the most ridiculous things he, he's ever heard. But he's interested in learning English. He's interested in learning um, modern scientific techniques and printing. So he actually becomes radicalized in Korean, uh, in American missionary schools in Korea, uh, comes to imbibe these ideas of liberty and uh, political rights. But he doesn't become a Christian 
which puts these missionaries in a very difficult situation where he's becoming increasingly more radical. He's starting to lead Korean movements that they're being blamed for. They're being blamed for radicalizing people like him, and they're not even able to get him to convert to Christianity. And so they're faced, they, they face this situation time and time again where they have to decide whether they're actually going to try to protect him knowing that it could risk a lot of what they're, uh, what they're trying to accomplish in Korea. He eventually does become a Christian, but he only becomes a Christian after he's been imprisoned and seems to have hit the very bottom mm-hmm. and, and think that he is probably likely going to die of either disease or execution at, at any moment. So it's a, it's a really interesting story of the relationship between the two. Yeah, and, and right there you've been talking about sort of that interesting role that American missionaries played in Korea uh, in the early 20th century Really quickly after that, though, you that's how you sort of start the book. We move into Rhee's uh, shifting to the U.S. and mm-hmm. Rhee's efforts to lobby the U.S. government. He's sort of a, a, the head of sort of this nationalist movement. He's lobbying the U.S. government. He's also lobbying the public on the right cause of independent Korea. And his efforts, as you mentioned before, span you know four decades up until he uh, up until 1945 at least. Give us a sense of what that lobbying looked like and, and sort of put us in that era. I mean, it's a big era, 1905 to 1945. But what did lobbying look like? What was his life like for for those years, sort of lobbying for independence uh, from the outside? Sure. Um, one of the things that Rhee was so great at was adapting his message. So he was, you know, probably the chief lobbyist for Korea's, for an independent Korea in the United States for 35 years. A lot changed over those 35 years. So his message had to change. But the one thing that stayed constant was trying to interest Americans in Korean Christianity. Um, so, so I need to back up just a little bit. American missionaries first come to Korea in 1884. For the first 20 years, they are not very successful at all. No more than a handful of converts. Um, but in 1907, one of the great revivals in the 20th century happens in Korea and, and centered in Pyongyang and spreads throughout the country. And almost immediately, Korean Christianity begins to grow exponentially. And um, Christians around the world, but especially in the United States, begin to pay attention to Korea at that point. And, and Korea goes from a backwater of American missionary activity to maybe the most exciting mission field in the world. And the hope is that Korea can become a majority Korean na- nation. And from Korea, missionaries can go into China, Korean missionaries who, you know, have a have a lot more cultural affinity uh, with Chinese than Americans would. Um, and so Americans get incredibly interested in Korean Christianity after 1907. And Rhee is well-placed in the United States at this point to become the spokesperson for Korean Christianity. He, he gets a degree from Harvard. He gets a Ph.D. from Princeton. And so one of the th- issues that he's always addressing as a lobbyist is Korean Christianity and the growth of Korean Christianity, trying to interest Americans in sending more missionaries, sending more resources to Korea. And, and he does this for two reasons. One, he knows that Americans are very interested in, Chris, in Korean Christianity, even if they're not interested in Korean politics or Korean independence. He knows that that is often a bridge too far. But he also believes that Korean Christianity and Japanese colonialism are incompatible. The Japanese are very skeptical of the influence of Christianity in Korea. They worry it will be an avenue for foreign influence in Korea. Um, and they're also trying to impose their own religion of state Shintoism on Korea. So he believes that Christianity and Japanese colonialism are incompatible. And the more Christianity grows, sooner or later there will be a conflict. And it just so happens that that is the case. So by constantly drawing American attention to Korean Christianity, he's both serving a religious mission, but he's also serving a political mission in a very sophisticated way. If he had put Korea's independence first, 
he never would have gotten anywhere. Americans, by and large, did not care whether Korea was an independent nation or not. They did care about Christianity in Korea and wanted to keep it growing. Um, but now there are two points where he puts the issue of Korean independence front and center, and that's during um, World War I, in the, towards the end of World War I in the negotiations over the Versailles Treaty, and during World War II. Because these are moments where the politics, the international politics of East Asia are front and center in American minds. And it's at those points that he tries to interject these issues of Korean independence um, into his lobbying. But it, Korean Christianity is something that he's always talking about and trying to influence interest Americans in. That's interesting. Yeah. And those two points, World War One or the end of World War One, the Versailles Treaty and World War Two, those are also the points where the U.S. could actually do something uh, on it. I mean, I guess in theory, um, the U.S. had power throughout. But those are two key sort of points where, that are uh, hinge points in uh, in history where things could have gone differently. Exactly. And there could have been a massive push for a bunch of self-determination around the world. Exactly. Um, and that, that makes sense there, too. So what did it look like for the sort of the day-to-day or the week-to-week of re-lobbying in the U.S.? Uh, I remember these are some of the vivid parts of the book. Uh, what was he doing? Who was he meeting with? Where was he traveling? Uh, things like that. Yeah, so for, for much of his career, he became a professional lecturer on Korean Christianity. So he would go from church to church. He would go from college to college. This is especially true in the, say, the 1907 to the early 1920s period, you know, in the aftermath of this Pyongyang revival. And he would explain what was happening in Korea. He would explain, you know, how Christianity was taking off, how it was growing exponentially, and Korea might be able to um, become the first Christian nation in Asia. And, you know, we, we have his diary. He was often paid for doing this. In fact, this is how he made his living. Um, he never made much of a living in the United States. In fact, he he had a probably throughout the teens in the 1920s, a really meager existence. He pretty much lived as an itinerant speaker. Now, by the 1930s and the 1940s, it, it's a little it's a little different. In, um, in 1919, Korea will form a provisional government in exile, and Sigmund Rhee will be elected as president of that government in exile, a position that he'll hold until the mid-1940s when he'll become de facto foreign minister. So in the late 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, he, he is interacting with policymakers at perhaps a, a bit of a higher level, but he's still doing a lot of what I would consider grassroots activism. But he lives a life on the road. Um, in his diary in the 1930s and 1940s, he, he records these epic road trips across the United States um, on really poor roads in really, really rough conditions, um, basically going and speaking to anyone who will listen to him, trying to influence them in supporting Korea's independence against Japan. Yeah, and it, that's before the the sort of national highway bills that yes. made, made it a little easier to travel across the country. He, he gets in two very serious car accidents in his life and another very third car accident during the Korean War. And someday I want to write a short piece on the three car accidents of Sigmund Rhee because he, any of these could have easily ended his life. And uh, the, the history of U.S.-Korean relations would probably be different if that was the case. Right, and, and he's driving around these just... Um, you know, small towns and uh, you have a couple pictures in the book of just, you know, really small town newspapers sort of have this picture of this, you know, Korean independence person uh, who's who's giving a talk or something in the town. So hopefully that gives a, the, the listeners a sense of uh, this is real lobby work. I mean, this this isn't just sitting in a D.C. office sort no. of meeting with Congress people, though, I, I, as you mentioned, I gather that it sort of moves toward that later on. Um, but uh, the climax of the story really is. 
uh, World War II. And you, you actually begin the book uh, talking about World War II. Why did Rhee believe he was on the cusp of gaining American support for in, an independent Korea finally during World War II? So I, I should back up just a little bit to, to the March 1st movement. So in, in, uh, on March 1st of 1919, there is a peaceful nonviolent protest in Korea demanding uh, Korean independence from Japan. Now, this is being done while all the policymakers are meeting at Versailles to write the peace treaty that's going to end World War I. Um, and the Koreans are definitely uh, are hoping that they can get on that agenda. Wilson has talked about self-determination for colonial people. The Koreans are hoping that that's going to apply to them. So they stage this nationwide protest, hoping they can get on the agenda. They don't get on the agenda. But what happens is the Japanese response is so violent. Um, it's estimated that they kill between six and seven thousand protesters mm. in just the first few weeks after this protest that it grabs headlines around the world. Um, and at this point, Sigmund Rhee really kicks his lobbying into high gear and feels that in the period between 1919 and 1920, he essentially wins the argument for Korean independence, that it, only an independent Korea uh, can be a Christian Korea, that actually Japanese colonialism, which some Americans had been supporting, is much more brutal, that Korea should be an independent country. The problem is that official U.S. policy recognizes Korea as a colony of the Japanese, and that's not going to change. Um, the politics of, of that are really interesting. We probably can't go into it here. But as long as the United States and Japan are at peace, that is almost certainly never going to change. So the way I describe it is in 1919, 1920, Re wins the argument, but he can't change the policy. All that changes after Pearl Harbor. Now the United States and Japan are at war. And this issue of Korean independence, which has been off the table essentially since 1905, comes up again because when if the United States defeats Japan, what are they going to do? Are they going to deprive them of their empire? And it seems pretty clear that they are going to do that. So then what is going to happen to Korea? And this is when Rhee really, really does probably his finest lobbying work, organizing American Christians to pressure their congressmen, to pressure Truman to do, well, first FDR, and then Truman to do something about Korea. And it, it, this is really part of the story of the Cairo Declaration of December of 1943. And in the Cairo Declaration, the Allies get together and say, after Japan is defeated, Korea will become an independent nation in due course. So the United States actually commits itself to supporting the reemergence of an independent Korea after Japan is defeated. Um, and this is a this is a really a large victory for Sigmund Rhee, although he's skeptical about the words in due course that are depend that are appended to this declaration. He would have preferred immediately after Japan is defeated. Um, but he because the United States and Japan are now at war, because the United States is on record committed to the reemergence of an independent Korea, he really feels like he's on the cusp of something good. And the independence of Korea, which has seemed an impossibility prior to Pearl Harbor now really seems possible. Yeah. And that takes us to, um, you, you talked about Re as a man of tragedy. Uh, that takes us to the, 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 where you end the story, at least, uh, at least this part of the story. And that's the division of Korea. So ultimately, why didn't the U.S. endorse his vision and instead settle for a division of Korea? I, I think it's all a matter of timing and resources. And in, in fact, I think the United States and American policymakers did endorse the idea of an independent Korea. The problem was no one knew when the Japanese were going to surrender. Um, and there was always a possibility that the Japanese might hold out 
and and fight to a standstill. And that part of their empire, whether it be in Korea or China, might have had to be left in place. If you can't defeat the Japanese militarily, no one knows, you know, just what Asia is going to look like at the end of World War II. Well, what happens is there's there's two atomic bombings in August of 1945. The Soviet Union enters the war against Japan, and Japan capitulates uh, really before any planning is done. Uh, regarding the post-war status of Korea. And so when Japan capitulates, Soviet forces are already marching into Korea, and the nearest American forces are about six weeks away. So there's nothing the United States can do to prevent the Soviet Union from overrunning all of Korea, although there is pressure on them to do something for Korea. This pressure is brought by, as I mentioned, you know, congressmen who, who re is organizing, but it's also brought by Americans who are deeply skeptical of the Soviet Union's intentions towards Korea because of what they've done in Poland, because of what they've done in Eastern Europe in Eastern Europe at this point. So there's tremendous pressure on Truman to do something for Korea, but there's no way he can stop the Soviet Union from entering. So instead, um, what American policymakers decided to do, and it's very important to understand that American military leaders are not in favor of this decision. It's American political leaders who push this decision, and they say, let's suggest a joint occupation of the Korean peninsula so that we have some influence on the Korean peninsula to make sure that it reemerges from Japanese colonization as an independent state. This is the best that they can do. And frankly, I think a lot of people expected the Soviet Union to turn them down. And if the Soviet Union had turned them down, there was absolutely nothing American policymakers could have done to prevent that. The Soviet Union would have occupied the entire Korean peninsula. Um, but the, the Soviets don't refuse. In fact, they accept this offer of a joint occupation um, because what they want and what they ask for in the next week is a joint occupation of Japan as well. So they can have some influence in Japan. The United States uh, refuses this. And so the joint occupation of Korea gets off to a very bad start from the beginning. But it's so important to understand no one at that time believed that this would become a permanent division of the Korean Peninsula. This was just a temporary expediency that the United States requested to try to make sure that an independent Korea would emerge from Japanese colonization. It ended up not going that direction. It ended up the two occupations ended up ossifying. This is a very uh, a complex story. Um, I think there's plenty of blame to go around for why this happened. But this is how the original line gets drawn, the original occupations get formed, is because there is political pressure for the United States to do something for Korea, brought by Rhee and his surrogates, but yet there is an inability to actually keep the Russians off the Korean Peninsula. Um, and, and so the division of Korea, and one of the points I want to make in this book, is it's actually less about communism and capitalism. Actually, communism and capitalism have almost nothing to do with it. It's a story that's really rooted in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, about American responsibilities and interests towards Korea. Yeah, that's that's the fresh sort of take on this story that um, that you come to because of your close research into Re and and this context that he worked in. Yeah, I, I, I should also add that this is the ultimate tragedy of Sigmund Rhee's life. He absolutely hated this decision and immediately saw the danger. I think. Almost all Koreans immediately saw the danger that once this line was drawn, once there was a joint occupation, there was a good chance. Uh, and initially they were worried that neither side would ever withdraw, that actually Korea would become a Soviet and an American colony. Um, but but it seems pretty clear that, that that's not going to happen. But then they realized that there is a real possibility that this division could become permanent. 
So Sigmund Rhee works against this division as as quickly as he can, but he simply can't overcome it. Um, the the geopolitics are such that neither side can withdraw. Neither side is willing to just turn over Korea to the Koreans. And, you know, three years later, we have the creation of two uh, separate Korean states. Right. And the U.S. involvement continues at that point. Yes. As well. Um, Okay, so if you could just wave a magic wand and have everyone, everyone who reads your book take away the same point, what would it be? You know, I'm just happy when anyone reads my book. So I I hope that they'll take whatever points they want. But one of the points, and and it it took me a while to understand this, and, and this came out through a lot of public lectures I was giving when the book came out, but... One of the messages that I feel uh, is so important in this book is is to just understand that the division of Korea was not the result of bad people or evil people or ideologies in conflict. That's the way it's usually described. The division of Korea actually came about because of people making decisions and engaging in activism that they hope would be in the service of a better world. Um, Americans became interested in Korea because they really believed that the spread of Christianity in Korea was important. And they also really believed um, that an independent Korea was important, that Korea should become an independent nation, that it should not remain a Japanese colonization. And they believed that they were supporting what was a just cause. And, and in many ways, it, it's hard to argue with that. However, their collective activism ended up contributing to a decision that would really have enormously negative con- uh uh, outcomes, you know, both with the permanent division, the Korean War, now the development of a inherently stable political, instable political situation on the Korean Peninsula with nuclear weapons. Um, and, and what I try to tell people is this should be a cause for humility for all of us. Um, and, and my message is you shouldn't engage in activism. My message is you, you should engage and you should, you know, follow your unconscious, but you should do so with a sense of humility because it's impossible to predict just what will be the result of tens of thousands of individual actions when that eventually works itself out through the historical process where there are other factors involved and well as well. And, and Sigmund Rhee at several points says he wished Korea never would have been divided, even if that would have meant that the, the Soviet Union had taken over because he felt like he would have been better off. He would have been better suited to lead a revolution against the Soviet Union than being stuck between American allies and uh, Soviet Union foes, or being stuck between Korean communists and Koreans who did not want communism for their country. Um, and so I, I, try to, I try to tell people that this should be a story that reminds us that we need to be humble in all of our actions. We need, we need to have a little bit of self-doubt, even when we're pursuing causes that we think are, are very just. And we also need to be understanding of people who don't support our causes, and of people who are maybe supporting things that we think maybe aren't the best idea, because we never really know how things are gonna how, how things are gonna work out in the end. And I think this really gets at the root of why I'm a historian and why I think history is so interesting. I think it rarely tells us what was right and what was wrong, but I think it offers us endless opportunities for introspection of ourselves and of our own motives. Well. Transitioning here just to a couple last questions that um, bring us up to the present. You talk a lot about Korea to your students. And as you mentioned, you give uh, lectures uh, both on the book and on other topics related to the Korean Peninsula and U.S. involvement in East Asia. What are just a couple of the key ideas you consistently hope to get across to a general public about Korea, the Korean Peninsula today? I, I think it depends on what audience I'm speaking to. 
But one of the things I always want people to see is just understand that there are connections. And, and I tend to speak mainly to Wisconsin audiences. And I think in Wisconsin, you know, we're a you know, medium-sized state in the Midwest, very far from any ocean, very far from East Asia. And sometimes I think we have a more insular view uh, than we should. And so what I want people to see is the connections between not just the United States, but where they live in East Asia. And so when I'm teaching my courses, one of the places I always like to start is actually with a tank in West Salem, Wisconsin at Veterans Memorial Park. And I kind of jokingly ask, you know, what is this tank there for? Is it commemorating the the great battle of West Salem? Um, Obviously it's not. It's commemorating the life of one Stanley R. Christensen, who was born in Mindoro, Wisconsin, a town of about 50 people, just a little ways north of West Elm, who ended up winning the Medal of Honor and dying in the Korean War. And when you start looking at parks and towns around the United States, especially small towns, you see that almost all of them have these memorials. Um, Our engagement with East Asia is not something that has happened in the Internet age. It, It goes all the way back. It's very deep. Um, And so I like to try to sensitize my audiences to look for these connections because once you're sensitized to them, you see them everywhere. I mean, half the products that we buy and consume are either made in East Asia or they're made in East Asian. uh, They're made by East Asian companies. You know, we consume media from East Asia all of the time. Our politics are constantly inundated with stories from East Asia. I mean, right now, global health is an issue that we're all focusing on, you know, which which is an issue that connects East Asia and the United States. So I, tr- I try to get them, first of all, I want them to see those connections. And second, I want them to understand the opportunities and also the challenges that are inherent in all of the United States relationships with East Asian countries, whether it's China, whether it's North Korea, um, whether it's uh, South Korea or Japan. And by understanding the opportunities and challenges, I hope to educate people on what is possible. What do we want to change about those relationships? What can we change about those relationships? And I think one of the most troubling developments um, in the last five years or so regarding U.S. relations with East Asia is we had a president in, in Donald Trump who didn't fundamentally understand these relationships and who promised people that he would accomplish things that weren't possible. Um, so, you know, he promised that he would start and win a trade war with China. That, that was not a possibility. He promised that he would solve the North Korean nuclear issue. I think there's maybe a very, very tiny chance that he could have done that, but, but ultimately it was, it was not something that probably he could have accomplished. He promised that he would force American allies to pay much, much more for the American presence um, supporting their own defense, which I think it was a fundamental misunderstanding of actually how much they do pay. But it was also something that he couldn't deliver on. And so I think what he did is, is based on this misunderstanding of these relationships and the opportunities and challenges that are in them, he made promises to the American people that he couldn't fulfill. And I think too many Americans were too unfamiliar with these relationships to know that these promises were impossible. Uh, and, and this will be my last point on this, but I, I always like to harp on this issue um, that when, when Donald Trump especially attacked China for Chinese trade practices, it wasn't that he was wrong. There are very serious issues um, in trade between the U.S. and China, but they are issues that every administration, probably since George W. Bush, had been working to address. And they had negotiated this wonderful trade deal called the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was actually going to create a trade block in the Pacific of almost all of our friends and allies in the region that would be an economic counterbalance to China. And the first thing Donald Trump did when he was in office is he tore up that plan, which had taken years, if not decades, to negotiate, and instead 
engaged in a bilateral trade war with China, which has just set American economic and national security interests back decades, I think. And and I think part of the reason that he was unable to do that is uh, policymakers and, quite frank, frankly, academics and other people who are educators on this topic did not do enough to explain to the American people what was at stake, why the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a good deal, why it was maybe not everything we would want, but it was a step in the right direction. Um, and, and so I think it's a failure on, on kind of all of our parts. Um, and, and so I, I guess I see part of my work as trying to highlight these connections, trying to educate people about these relationships, both their challenges and opportunities, and then helping them understand what is possible. And when we understand that, I think then we can hold our own policymakers to a better account. And, and we can see really these relationships reach their maximum potential and really benefit all involved instead of pursuing policies that are not only harmful to the region, but that are harmful to our own interests. It makes a lot of sense and also connects well with your center's sort of public mission about educating on these issues. How do you keep track of issues in East Asia? And how would you encourage listeners to keep track of those things as well? So, so I am very heavily focused on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I follow everything, but th- there are some really wonderful uh, sources that I read on the Korean Peninsula. Almost all major Korean dailies actually also publish in English. So um, I, I like to, to read what's called the, the Chungang Ilbo or the Chosan Ilbo, um, which, which would be the, the Chungan Daily or the, the, Chosan, the Chosan Daily. Um, these are fairly mainstream Korean news sources that they're on the conservative side. So I also read what's called the Hangyole, which is very, very hard <laughs> to pronounce um, if, you're, if you're an English speaker. So it's H-A-N-K-O-R-Y-E-H. And that is a more liberal um, Korean daily. So if you read both of these in tandem, you get um, kind of both a liberal and conservative view of what's happening in Korea and in East Asia from the Korean perspective. Um, Regarding North Korea, I follow North Korea very closely. There is a a specialist news organization called nknews.org. Um, I actually don't read them very often because most of their stuff is behind a paywall, but they have a podcast called the nknewspodcast.org, um, and it's absolutely wonderful. So if you're interested in maybe understanding North Korea, getting a bit of an inside look, um, I read that a lot. I also, Dan, as you know, I'm a devoted reader of The Economist. I, I tend to read as little American media about East Asia as possible. I tend to find that uh, American media... I think in, engages in a lot of navel gazing and constantly relating, trying to relate things to an American perspective where I feel like in a, mag- a magazine like The Economist actually takes a much more international perspective. Um, so that's another source that I read. Uh, I, I will say where I start all of my classes is I have my students read what I think is this wonderful book called The Song of Arirang, which is written by, um, by Nim Wales, which was a pseudonym for Helen Foster Snow. But it's the biography of a, a Korean growing up in the early 20th century, and it's his, his transition from Christianity to anarchism to terrorism to communism. And it really traces his life from the 1890s all the way up through to the 1930s. And what it does is it gives you a tour around the historical forces that have really made East Asia what they are today. So you get in there the explosive growth of Christianity in Korea. You get the explosive growth of communism in China. You get a sense of how East Asians outside of Japan resent Japan for their colonialism, the way this person struggled against colonialism. 
Um, and, and I think it is one of the finest introductions that you can get anywhere to the current politics of East Asia. And um, for years, it was out of print. Actually, just this year, it went back into print, which I'm delighted about. So you can get the paperback version on Amazon for probably about $11. You can also read it for free on the Royal Asiatic Society Korea branches website. But I think it's a wonderful introduction. I mean, it, it's almost 100 years old now, but I think it stands alone as a wonderful introduction to modern East Asia, both its its politics and its culture. Great historical recommendation there. Um, okay, last question. Uh, so Upper House has a predominantly Christian audience, and do you? I know you didn't write to a Christian audience for the book uh, or for most of your other things, but do you have any particular ways you hope Christians will read and understand your writing? And I think especially given the prominent role of missionaries in the story. Yeah, you, you know, when, when I wrote this book, uh, I think the only audience that I really had in mind was I hope that people who were interested in Korea, especially policymakers who were interested in how on earth did we get to these two Koreas anyway, would be able to pick up this book and understand it. Um, so I, I never wrote with a specifically Christian audience in mind. And I should say that even though so much of my work <laughs> uh doesn't revolve around, but Christian, Korean Christianity is a major part of it, and missionaries are a major part of it. I've never really thought those, thought of those as primary interests of mine, even though I, I've done a lot of, of, I've spent a lot of time thinking about them. Um, so I've never really thought about how I want Christians to read my work, but I, I, I feel like for people who are interested in missionaries, I hope this book will, will really be challenging no matter what your view is. So I tend to think of, there's a lot of skepticism about the missionary endeavor. Um, there's a lot of questions about mixed motives. There's a lot of cautionary tales when it comes to missionaries and and much of that is warranted, but I hope someone who reads my book will understand these people a little bit better as people and will understand, um, all of the things that they sacrifice to engage in this mission. Um, and, and how they really came to really love the people that are around them. And, And I think their relationship with Sigmund Rhee is so interesting in that they went to great lengths to protect him, even at the risk of destroying their own mission work, despite the fact that he wasn't a Christian. Um, they, they came to know and love and value him as a person. And the fact that he was a Christian at the end of the day, he wasn't a Christian, was a complicating factor, but it wasn't something that caused them to, you know, to jettison him, which, which they could have done at many points. The other thing that, that just struck me as I was doing research in this book is, you know, when, when you told your parents that you were going to become a missionary to Korea in the early 19th century. This was not something your parents were happy about because that meant that you were going to leave. They were probably never going to see you again because you were going to die of some disease when you got to Korea. I mean, the fatality rates among American missionaries in Korea, and I think a lot of places, is rather high. I mean, these are radical individuals who are making radical sacrifices So for what they believed in. And, and, and I think that there's something very interesting about that. And, and it's something that you can respect them for. So if you're very skeptical of missionaries, I, I hope that you'll, you'll have that tempered a little bit by reading my book. Um, on the other hand, if you're very, um, if you have maybe too much respect for these missionaries, if you're maybe too sympathetic to the missionary endeavor, um, I also try to make clear in my book that these missionaries are cultural imperialists and they make no bones about that. Um, their intention is to show up in Korea to tell Koreans how to live, what to believe, how to cut their hair, and to fundamentally remake Christian society, and, and not necessarily patterned 100% on American society, but certainly patterned on Western society. And this is something that I think most Americans and most Christians now are, um, are uncomfortable with. And, and we realize that 
you know, there is not all aspects of a culture need to change, you know, that we should we should respect differences between cultures. And I think we can fault them for that, um, for them maybe going a little bit too far and going a little bit too bossy. So uh, I hope that no matter what your view is on American missionaries or the American missionary endeavors, this uh, this book will temper that just a little bit. And, you know, like I said in a little bit earlier, that it'll be a cause for humility, you know, that we can we can judge them. Uh, we can think about what they did that could have been better. But but we should do so with an eye to what mistakes are we ourselves making right now that uh, 100 years from now, historians will be saying, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they believed that. That was so ridiculous. Yeah, of course. It's always helpful to uh, reflect on some of these issues around Christianity and culture in, in new contexts, not mm. just thinking about our own sort of American domestic situation all the time. And I think that, that this book clearly does that yeah. as well. And and I maybe should should mention that although I don't I don't study it, um, Christianity is still very very strong in in Korea today. Um, it it's probably the most Christian nation in East Asia. It's not a majority Christian nation, but probably usually it's between thirty and thirty five percent of Koreans identify as Christian. And it it's a fascinating community to study. Um, there is a lot of really admirable things that goes on in Korean Christianity. There's a lot of really problematic things that go on in, in Korean Christianity too. I don't happen to study that, but there's a lot of really good research out there on it. I know um, Robert um, Buzzwell has written a nice overview of Korean Christianity that I would maybe recommend to your readers if they're looking for a good introduction um, to this and, and maybe avenues for, for further research or education. That's great. We'll, we'll have that link in the show notes. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you, David. Thank you for the book. And thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much, Dan. Um, as you know, you spend uh, 10 years of your life um, researching and writing about a book, and then you spend the rest of your life wondering if anyone is ever going to read it or care about it. So I'm always grateful for any opportunity I get to, to talk about my research and hopefully to introduce it to a broader audience. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we liked producing it. It's a privilege for us at the podcast and at Upper House to have extended conversations with members of our community and to showcase their work in the little ways we can. Please check out also David's other work at davidpfields.com, which we realized after we recorded the conversation, we didn't mention this, includes something written by David, which is an epic rap battle uh, featuring Syngman Rhee, Joseph Stalin and Harry Truman about the division of Korea. So uh, that's also a very good or fun uh, teaching resource as well. I also wanted to mention that David and I are actually co-producers or co-directors of something called Voices and Visions, which is a teaching resource about U.S. foreign relations and using video and other types of media besides written word to teach about U.S. foreign relations in the 20th century. So I'll, that'll be in the show notes as well. And finally, if you have people in the UW community or in Madison more generally that you think would be good interviews for the podcast, please don't hesitate to email us at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org with suggestions. We're always looking for people to talk to. With that, until next time, go in peace. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle 
at Upper House UW.